Well, welcome everybody to uh, Sunday Dive. I am a little pressed for time this week. So we're doing something, uh, I'm doing something a little bit different. Um, some of you know that last January, this this just a few months ago, I had the great privilege and pleasure of taking 34 beautiful people to the Holy Land. And one of the special things about that for me is that I got to break open the scriptures um, with those people in the places where those scriptures actually took place. So our um, our gospel today is the transfiguration, Matthew 17, one through nine. And so because I am pressed for time um, and, and am not able to record an entire podcast episode, but still wanted to give you something special, I am going to, this episode, pull back, if you were, the curtain and uh, give you a sneak peek into my pilgrimage to the Holy Land that uh, we took just this last January. And so what I'm going to share with you today in our podcast episode is a short talk. It is short. It's only 15 minutes long, but it has it hits all the highlights. I didn't have a lot of time time to talk at the uh, the the sacred sites that we were at, but I, I still made sure to hit all the highlights. So this short talk that I gave on Matthew 17, one through nine, delivered on the very site of the transfiguration, Mount Tabor, not all that far from Nazareth and Galilee. For those of you who have been to the Holy Land, let your mind wander back to this place. For those of you who have not been to the Holy Land, go ahead and use your imagination, sit back in your chair, close your eyes, hopefully if you're not driving, (laughs) and just imagine yourself on the top of Mount Tabor, the site of the transfiguration. And together we are going to break open Matthew 17, one through nine. Thanks so much for listening. The Transfiguration, we're at Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So Matthew tells us right away after six days. Why does he say after six days? He's linking it with something. So what happened six days before? Six days before was Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. We're going to go there in a few days tomorrow or the day after. And what happened at Peter's confession? Well, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? But then after that, Jesus starts to foretell his passion And Peter's bothered by this. This is the part where he says, like, God forbid, Lord, right? And Jesus has an intense response for him. Uh, Get behind me, Satan, right? So six days after that, Peter finds himself on top of this mountain, right? With James and John. So there's a connection between the transfiguration and the passion. 
Many theologians think that one of the things that Jesus was doing here was giving them a glimpse of his resurrection, of who he really was, so that they would have that to hold on to when the passion began, right? There's some other interesting parallels with the Old Testament going on here. So if we turn to Exodus 24, we read uh, right after the Exodus, um, they come to Mount Sinai. It's the beginning of God making a covenant with the people at Israel, okay? So they're on a high mountain, right, on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Moses goes up the mountain and he brings with him three people, interestingly enough, right? He brings Aaron. We've heard of him before. He brings another man named Nadab and another man named Abihu, okay? Now, Aaron is a high priest, right? And so we can see a connection between Aaron and St. Peter, that authority going on here, right? Is there any other connections there, though? Uh, Nadab and Abihu are brothers, interestingly enough, right? And we have James and John here on Mount Tabor as brothers as well. At that time, so Moses with the three goes up on the mountain and a cloud comes. The glory of the Lord comes down on the mountain in Exodus, the Shekinah, the glory cloud, just like it's going to come upon Mount Tabor, right, when, when our Lord is here. Exodus 34, 29 and following tells us when this happened, Moses' face shone like the sun, okay? Now, so we have these parallels between Moses and Jesus, right? But there's, there's, there's also a dissonance going on because Moses' face shone because he was seeing God, right? Jesus' face shines, his, his whole body shines because he is God. So there's also a confirmation, this connection between what's happening on Mount Tabor and what happened at Caesarea Philippi. There's this kind of foretelling of the resurrection, but there's also this confirmation of Peter's confession, okay? Because Peter made that confession by God's revelation, and yet it's as if God is confirming for them, letting them actually see, I am divine. Getting that glimpse. Because they'd seen his wonders that he had worked, right? But they're actually seeing him in his transfigured way. Just as Moses was shining just from seeing God's face, right? Jesus is the Lord. And so he's, he's shining in all of his glory, right? Um, on Mount Sinai, a law is given, all right? A law is given on Mount Sinai. Here, a law is given as well. It's very subtle, but the law is given. What is the law? What is the law that's given on Mount Tabor? It's Christ himself, Christ himself is the law. And so um, we hear, um, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We heard that earlier in scripture. Anybody recall when we heard that earlier in scripture? At the baptism. But here we have this clause added to it. Listen to him. Okay? So it's the new law coming down on the mountain. And that new law is Jesus Christ. If you go to the catechism and you look up what the new law is. Anybody ever done this? What is the new law? The grace of the Holy Spirit. It's the infusion of God's very life. So Jesus himself is the embodiment of the law, okay, given to us. The transfiguration I love to talk about because it's like an onion. You peel off different layers, right, of meaning. So that's like the first layer. Let's peel off another layer. So Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah here on this mountain that we're sitting on right now. There's one view that they represent the law and the prophets, like the summation of all of that. 
There's another view that's not mutually exclusive, which is that, again, there's a subtle foretelling of the resurrection going on here. Why do I say that? Because Moses and Elijah, for the Jewish people, were two men who's, um, who were in heaven body and soul, okay? Moses and Elijah are two men that for the Jewish people are in heaven body and soul. Why do I say that? Well, at 2 Kings 2.11, we read it very cut and dry. Elijah was assumed into heaven, okay? It's right there in scripture. Moses, you have to look for it a little bit more. At Deuteronomy uh, 34.6, we're told that Moses does die, but there is this tradition that his body is taken up into heaven. So, for example, at Jude 1.9, this is a New Testament, te- New Testament text, right? Uh, we read this weird thing in Jude that St. Michael and um, Satan are fighting over the body of Moses. Okay, it's kind of interesting. But this also points to an extra-biblical text that's titled The Assumption of Moses, okay? Which, again, confirms this idea that for the Jewish people, Moses was assumed into heaven. And so by appearing here with Moses and Elijah, again, this like subtle foretelling of the resurrection, I'm here with two men who are in heaven body and soul, okay? Their bodies were not allowed to see decay, and so a foretelling that Jesus' body is not going to be allowed to see decay either, right? This is what we have in the, the transfiguration. And interestingly enough, we're going to see parallels of this also in the cross. So a lot of times, like when we, when we open up scripture together over the next eight days, seven days, we're going to see the New Testament reaching back into the Old Testament and then also like reaching forward. And so we have the transfiguration, this event right now that we're looking at right now on this mountain, but then we're going to find Jesus again at a high place, right? And he's going to be flanked by two men. Where is this? Calvary, right? And here we see his identity as well. So right here on Mount Tabor, he's showing his identity. He's showing himself shining in his divinity. And yet at the same time, he's going to show his identity on Calvary. And in some ways... This is, this is even more his identity. I, don't, I hesitate to say that in some ways because it's the, it's the Lord, right? So, of course, he wanted to show himself in his transfiguration. But it's not as if he goes around flaunting that, right? At the end of the text, he says, tell no one about this experience. And so it's as if he wants the passion to happen first so that we see his identity as a man on the cross, a man stripped of everything, a man who came to do that for us. That's the primary thing that he wants to show us. He doesn't want to flaunt his glory, right? And so we see him here at the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor, flanked by these two men, but then here in a few verses or in a few chapters, and, and for us, we're going we're gonna to journey with Jesus, right? And we're going to see him on Calvary. And so we get Jesus as he is, in his divinity, and looking forward to him on the cross. There's another layer. Okay, let's peel back one more layer. Peter, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths. This is where Peter gets a bad rap, right? (laughs) What a dumb thing to say, Peter. Why? Why do we give him a bad rap? There's actually something really fascinating going on here that scholars think Peter is kind of alluding to or picking up on what he thinks Jesus is possibly alluding to. And so to understand that, we need to look at this term booths, booths. In Greek, it's skene, okay? Skene. Um, 
we want to connect this or see if there's a connection here to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so the Jewish people have a handful of feasts that they celebrate. And one of the feasts that they celebrate is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now that word, tabernacles, in Greek is skene. Okay, so it's the Feast of Skene. It is possible, some theologians think, that the transfiguration happened sometime around or on the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Skene, okay? There's also another kind of interesting connection here that some scholars point out. Um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles are five days apart, six days later, okay? So that would kind of mean that there's possibly a parallel between Yom Kippur and Peter's confession, which interestingly enough, Yom Kippur is the only day of the year that um, the divine name is actually spoken. Yahweh, okay? So the Jewish people hold the divine name in such esteem that they don't actually speak it, but the high priest is able to speak it on the day of atonement. What did Peter say at his confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So there might be some connection there too. It's really fascinating. So feasts in Judaism have like a threefold kind of meaning to them. They have an agricultural dimension. They have a, a religious or liturgical dimension. And then they have an eschatological dimension, okay? So how does the Feast of Tabernacles come up in these three different dimensions? Well, Tabernacles celebrates the final ingathering of the harvest. There's another feast that celebrates the beginning of the ingathering, but this is like the completion of it, okay? And during the, the final gathering of the harvest, the people would spend all, the farmers would spend their whole day out in the field such that they would tent camp out in the fields, okay? They would dwell in booths, skene, out in the fields, all right? During the, the final ingathering. So that's the agricultural dimension going on here. What about the liturgical dimension? So the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle, right? So before the temple is built um, by Solomon in Jerusalem, God is dwelling with his people in a booth, in a skene, okay? And traveling with them everywhere that they go. And so for the Jewish people, tabernacle celebrates this, that God dwells with them, that he dwells with his people. And what's this eschatological uh, dimension? So eschatological means like a looking forward, a looking forward to like a final redemption, okay? For the Jewish people, tabernacles was a looking forward to the new exodus, okay? Because the people dwelt in booths during the exodus, right? And they were looking for a new exodus. They wanted to be freed from the occupation, right? They wanted to be, they were even looking for a, a spiritual new exodus. And so if the new exodus happens, then we will dwell in booths again. And so it seems that Peter seems to believe that what Jesus is initiating here is a new exodus. And what's even more fascinating is if you look at the actual Greek uh, of, of the conversation here, um, we don't get it in Matthew. I think it's in Luke's account of the transfiguration. It says that Jesus was discussing um, his, uh, his departure with Moses and Elijah. They're like having a conversation. Well, in Greek, that, that term departure is actually exodus. So in Luke's account of the transfiguration, it says Jesus was discussing with Moses and Elijah his exodus, okay? So it's as if Peter is picking up on all of these details and sees our Lord is going to initiate, is initiating the new exodus, and it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here. So let us make three booths. Let us dwell in booths because the new exodus is upon us. And so... What we find ourselves in here right now as Christians is the new exodus. 
the, the exodus has begun, right? The Lord has freed us, but we are still on a journey to our final destination, right? What is our final destination? Heaven, Heaven right? And so we, as the, the, the church here on earth, have been freed through grace, through Jesus' redemption, but we are, are still on our journey. We're still on our exodus. And interestingly enough, just as the Jewish people, the Jewish farmers, right, were out in the harvest, are we not supposed to do the same? Are we not supposed to be out in the harvest gathering in? That is, that is our role here and now. And so in the transfiguration, we see our Lord's divinity shining forth. We see him pointing to the cross as his true identity. We see him subtly saying that I have begun, I have initiated the new exodus. And this is all a source of hopefulness for us. The transfiguration is something we should come back to like personally in our prayer life when we're struggling. Because Jesus gave it to Peter, James, and John for, for strength, for the passion, right? And so he gives the transfiguration to us as well in our personal lives as a, as a thing to look to when we need strength in our own lives. And so take this passage, take this experience. Again, like Amr said yesterday, you're going to read the gospel in color now. So you can read the transfiguration and imagine yourself here again on Mount Tabor and you take that with you through life, through your exodus, right? Understanding that the Lord is with you and this is your hopefulness. This is what Peter, James, and John did, right? They held on to it and it was still a struggle for them, right? In the midst of the passion. But what's the next time in scripture we see Peter, James, and John singled out again? The Garden of Gethsemane, okay? This is the power of what we find here on Mount Tabor. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Praise God.